0: And once again, good morning. I'm not sure where to tell you to turn this morning. We, we're in John's Gospel, but we're not really in John's Gospel, at least not for today. Uh, let me just start by saying, because the new folks are going, what in the world is he talking about? For the last five weeks, we've you know, we we've been uh, doing a study for the last five weeks called True Freedom. And uh, the series was birthed from our study in John's Gospel, we're in chapter 8, where Jesus... Um, said that the power of God working through the word of God has the ability to set men and women free from the lies and grip of the devil. We know that Satan is called in scripture to the God of this world. The word world means fallen world system, and he's filled this world system with lies that have brought unbelievers into bondage. Lies that he has used to take them captive, to do his will, to live the lives he wants them to live. Check out Second Timothy 2, verses 23 to 26. But Jesus assured us that God's word has the power to set them, set you free. Now, a word of caution. Once you've been set free from the devil's hold on your life and have even entered into partial victory over old sins, a whole new set of enemies will emerge that you must fight against. Dangers, what they are. That will try to take your victory from you and uh, these enemies are especially dangerous because they don't come against you from without they come against you from within the first one i am calling the danger of complacency hyphen stopping short the danger of complacency stopping short why don't you turn to joshua chapter 12. While you're turning there, uh, actually make it chapter 13. But um, while you're turning there, let me just tell you this, that it was roughly a seven-year period from the time Israel entered into the promised land until they had defeated the 31 kings of Canaan listed in the book of Joshua chapter 12. Now, what you need to understand is that even though Israel had conquered most of the promised land, As we come to chapter 13, it says that by this time, Joshua was old and advanced in years, and there still remained very much land that was yet to be conquered and possessed. So God told Joshua, because he was now too old to lead the the armies of Israel in the battle against the remaining Canaanite strongholds, that he was to divide the land by lot, giving each tribe their own Inheritance, their own portion of land to conquer and possess. This meant that uh, each individual tribe would now be responsible to drive out the remaining pockets of enemy occupation and complete the mission. Joshua uh, had started, thus each tribe taking full possession of the land God had promised to give to them. If they continued to be faithful to the Lord, obeying all that he had commanded them to do, then he promised to be faithful to them, giving each tribe victory little by little until they possessed all the, land, all the land God promised would be theirs. The problem was that by this time, many of God's people were tired of war. They, they didn't want to fight anymore. Instead, all they wanted to do was to settle down in peace and comfort and you know, enjoy what they had already taken possession of. Now, that led Joshua in chapter 18 to challenge the people. He said, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Or in other words, How long will you let complacency keep you from total victory and from taking possession, listen, of all, all that God has promised you? Guys, Joshua rightly understood that complacency was potentially a greater enemy to the people of God than were the Canaanites. The reasons for complacency would include everything from growing comfortable due to self-satisfaction, which means kind of standing, standing back and admiring what you've already accomplished. Stay away from that. To carnality and worldliness, another uh, two uh, reasons for complacency even to things like discouragement depression a loss of interest a lot of people start strong but they lose interest in the things of God or even laziness okay now unfortunately this is the sad but all too common testimony of many of God's people today once they get saved they become soldiers of Christ we all are once we get saved they begin they begin fighting the good fight of faith at least for a while doing battle with the flesh the world and the devil our three main enemies that uh, come against us constantly. Now this leads to some victory. Initially they start out pretty good, and they're fighting a the good fight, and uh, this leads to some victories over bad habits, over worldly thinking and alliances, resulting in, you know, some souls being saved, some territory conquered for God's glory, stuff taken up, land taking, uh, uh, areas or territory taken away from the devil who controlled these folks and so on. I think all of God's people start strong. The, the uh, goal of the Christian life is not just to start strong, it's to finish strong, to finish strong. For a lot of Christians, they start strong, but eventually grow weary in well-doing. In other words, they get tired of fighting the battles of the Lord and instead want to settle down into a comfortable Christianity. When this happens, they come to church to fellowship more than to be trained to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, who see church as a time to get refreshed, revived, to go out then into the battle for the next week, out into the world to fight the devil by seeking to rescue those whom he has taken captive. And guys, the tragic result is that, and I see it today more than I've ever seen it, the tragic result is that more and more Christians see their Christianity as merely a social outlet, They call it fellowship, but true biblical fellowship involves encouraging one another in the work of God and keeping each other accountable in living for Christ, not just cake and coffee after church. (laughs) Not that I'm against that, but that's much more than that, biblically speaking. The reasons are many as to why Christians stop moving forward in their walk with Jesus and let complacency paralyze their effectiveness for him. The problem is that so many in that condition have no idea that there is a problem in their life. In their mind, they firmly believe they are, listen, holding their own. However, they're wrong. In the Christian life, there's no such thing as holding our own, in other words, standing still and being victorious. Because in the Christian life, either you're moving forward in your walk with God or you're sliding backward. There is no static position. And this manifests itself. How do I know if I am actually sliding backward? And it happens often very slowly, imperceptibly. How do I know if I've let complacency grip my heart and I'm not realizing that I'm slowly moving backward? Well, this kind of thing manifests itself in how areas of your flesh that you had previously conquered, por- uh, pornography, profanity, cigarettes, drugs, etc. When you begin to fall into complacency, these things begin to rise up and take control of your life once again. Complacency is, is happens when you stop going to church on a regular basis. Stop reading your Bible like you used to, starting your day with it. Stop hanging out with other Christians. And I'm talking about strong Christians. We read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, Be careful that you don't drift. That you don't drift. And drifting is very subtle. It, it, it's, again, almost imperceptible. That you begin to see little telltale signs that things are not right. The language starts coming back that you had victor over. And believe me, I work with truck drivers, okay? I know that kind of language. Um, you know, just little things. Um, the, the, the way you feel about just your walk in general and your zeal for the Lord and so on. What is the cure for complacency? Very simply, or the prevention of it? Well, very simply, to keep moving in a forward direction with the Lord. I mean, if you're constantly moving forward, the devil can't get, get you to slide backward. Very simple. And one of the best ways to do that, listen to me, is to stay in ministry. When Christians tell me, well, I'm going to just take a little time off. I'm just going to you know, take a little time off uh, from ministry. Usually I never see them again. Hey, look, stay in ministry. Stay in ministry. Even when things get hard and you want to quit and isolate yourself, Don't do it. Look, any soldier that gets tired of fighting and wants to kick back and relax being content, you know, to let others go and fight in their place. And I'm talking about serving God in ministry. while they stay home and kind of retire is setting themselves up for a fall. Case in point, King David was a soldier, a warrior for so many years. Now he's about 55 or so, has just built himself a brand new cedar palace and he doesn't want to really go out into the field to live in the trenches because it's springtime is coming, right? Or it's come. And that's when armies go out to fight, not in the wintertime and things that's sloppy and everything's wet and soaked and chariots are useless in that kind of condition. So uh, spring, we read that it says in the Bible, at one point in the spring of the year, when kings go out to battle, David stayed home to enjoy his new palace and sent his general Joab in his place. This gave David a lot of free time on his hands. And you remember the story. One evening, he's walking on top of his palace roof, which was a patio. They were functional, still are in Israel. And he looks down below and sees on the rooftop of a house below the palace a beautiful woman bathing. He lusted after her. He sent his servants to take her. She, she comes over. He lays with her. She gets pregnant. And you know the story of David and Bathsheba. David would never have fallen into that kind of sin had he been where God wanted him to be. where he, If he was where he should have been, fighting the battles of the Lord. As we've already pointed out, after seven years of war in Canaan, the men of Israel got tired of war. They didn't want to fight anymore. All they wanted to do was kind of get settled down in peace and comfort and enjoy what they had already taken possession of. So later on, In the book of Joshua and at the beginning of the book of Judges, we read how that tribe after tribe failed to drive the enemy completely out of their portion of the land that they had received, and this led to all kinds of problems down the road for the nation, Uh, because now the nation, God's people, were intermixed with pagan people. Uh, Many of God's people actually married these pagan folks. Well, it set the stage for apostasy, idolatry, and eventually judgment. Look, guys, if you stop moving forward for the Lord, where you stop, you know, reading your Bible as you once did, stop spending time with the Lord in prayer, stop serving Him in ministry, you, you won't necessarily see the effects right away, but you will eventually see the, re, the effects in time. A classic mistake a lot of people make. Um, is they often look at their situation and go, well, you know, I'm not suffering any negative consequences. In fact, I'm still being blessed by God. So apparently he doesn't care if I'm not in ministry anymore. Or he doesn't care that I'm not, you know, as zealous about the things of God as I used to be. Look at, I'm being blessed still. Even as you see them on Facebook, which I'm not on, but I hear uh, people tell me, that Folks that used to come to the church and now they're on Facebook uh, in some bar somewhere with their friends holding up a beer or whatever. Um, Their Facebook page has nothing to do with God anymore. No scripture is quoted. One of the reasons they're misinterpreting their circumstance and thinking that, well, God's still blessing me. I must be okay. I must be right with him still. One of the reasons they're misinterpreting their circumstances is because, listen to me, the goodness and grace of God often aren't removed immediately from a person's life once they start down the path of compromise and complacency. Years ago, I heard a pastor say that this used to trouble him. why people continue to be blessed even after they leave ministry and maybe even get back into the world. Well, goodness of God leads us to repentance, But he used an illustration I thought was kind of interesting. He learned that if a locomotive is going 70 miles an hour and the power is completely cut, it will take two miles before that thing comes to a stop. I think a lot of Christians are coasting. I think the power has been turned off, but they're coasting because they're not walking with God like they used to. Now, because they're coasting, they're moving forward, they think things are good, but they're not good. So be careful of the danger of complacency, stopping short, of all God has for you. Number two, beware of the danger of commixing, hyphen, friendship with the world. Webster's Dictionary defines commixing as, and I'm quoting, the act of blending or mixing together. When the children of Israel failed to drive out the enemy completely from Canaan, as I just said, the result was that the Promised Land was left compromised with pagan beliefs and practices. Listen to what God had warned them about before he even led them into the promised land. Uh, He warned them in Numbers 33 verse 55, that if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, completely is the idea, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. This mixture of God's people with the world, in this case pagans, led to compromise of their walk, a dilution in their commitment to God, and ultimately to their downfall and defeat. Read the history of Israel going forward after they entered the promised land after a few uh, years. Guys, the only way, excuse me, let me just say this. God wants us to have, to live holy lives. The word holy means to be set apart, separated from. When God says he wants us to live holy lives, he means lives that are separated from the world. We, we are in the world, but we don't have to be of the world. Like someone has said years ago, it's okay for a ship to be in the sea, but watch out when the sea gets into the ship. It's okay for a Christian to be in the world, that's where God has put us, but watch out when the world gets into the Christian. It didn't take God very long at all to deliver his people out of Egypt with a mighty and outstretched arm. It took a long time to remove Egypt from them. And for some, it never did happen. God wants us to live holy lives once we're saved. That doesn't mean holier than now or isolated from the world because we can't be around these pagans anymore. But God wants us to live separate lives while being in this world system. And also, He wants us to enjoy and to achieve True victory all the way. Jesus died to give us total victory on Calvary's cross. And God expects us to walk in that victory because it's ours. It's our birthright that we be more than conquerors through him who loves us. But listen, the only way for us as the people of God in the new covenant to have total victory in our lives is to obey, listen, the words of the Lord Jesus, Matthew 4, verse 4, every word that proceeds from the mouth of, Of God. As we uh, said in our study in 1 John last Wednesday, the goal of Christianity is to grow into strong men and women of God who know his word and can use it to defeat the devil. But the quickest way, and Satan knows this, and so the quickest way for Satan to hinder or stop that growth and along with it our victory is to try to get us to fall into worldliness worldliness and so guys this becomes ground zero for spiritual warfare this becomes ground zero for spiritual warfare in our battle with the devil which is a battle for control of our heart in other words who or what are we going to love more god or the world very simply godly christians defeat the enemy worldly christians are defeated by the enemy John knew this. And so in chapter 2 of his first epistle, John warns Christians to be on guard against this very thing. He said in 1 John 2, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him or in her. He goes on. He says, all that is in the world, this world system, controlled by the devil, designed to keep you worldly as a Christian, so you, he keeps you from being a threat to him. All that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, these are not from the Father, but are of the devil, the God of this world is the idea. Understand you're being played, and I'm being played. The devil is tempting us. He's targeting the three areas of our fallen nature he knows are most vulnerable, areas that he can, he can capitalize on. He's a very patient, strong, a strategist, he, he studies our lives with a fine tooth comb and devises a, 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 a plan that's going to be most effective in neutralizing our walk for the Lord, with the Lord and our work for the Lord. Be careful. Who are you going to love more? It all comes down to that. Are you going to love God more or are you going to love the world more? Jesus said the greatest, the most, the supreme commandment Of all the commandments, 613 commandments in the Old Testament, the most important, the the supreme commandment of all of them, he said, was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The first is to love God with all your heart. When we studied Joshua 14 several years ago, as we studied the book of Joshua, we saw how Caleb, was one of the only men, I think Joshua was definitely another, to drive out the enemy out of his inheritance completely and wound up living, Caleb did, in the city of Hebron. You know what Caleb's name means? It means wholehearted. You know what Hebron means? Communion. And only those who are wholehearted for God wind up living in communion with God. Uh, That's the lesson I believe the Holy Spirit is talking to us about, teaching us. Several hundred years later, David gave his son Solomon some godly advice on the day he was coronated as king of Israel. I'll have you turn to it since you might want to just mark it. I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles. You don't know that? 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. I'm looking at it and you're just wondering, well, why isn't he telling us? 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. Good advice from a godly man. David wasn't a perfect man, but he was a godly man. He loved the Lord with all his heart. And so now he's passing the mantle to his son Solomon, young guy. I don't know how old Solomon was, 16, 17 maybe. Young guy. And here's what David told the old statesman, telling the new king, As for you, my son Solomon... Know the God of your father, the ideas, intimately, deeply. And serve him, listen, with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Good advice. Solomon took it, at least initially. He started out pretty well in his relationship with God as a young king. But if you read the story of Solomon's life, after a while it seemed that something was missing in his life, at least he thought there was. His heart seemed unsatisfied and incomplete. David had admonished him to serve the Lord with with a loyal heart, but the Holy Spirit tells us later on in 1 Kings 11 verse 4 that Solomon's heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. The word loyal... Is a Hebrew word that carries with it the idea of completeness or wholeheartedness. In other words, Solomon's heart was not completely given over to God. He had what we would call a divided heart. In fact, the Hebrew literally means at peace with. Solomon's heart was not at peace with God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he didn't know God. I believe Solomon was genuinely saved. But his heart was still restless. Like a lot of believers. His relationship with God didn't really satisfy him fully as it did his father, David. David loved God so much. you know. My, I, one thing I desire, that I have asked of the Lord, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All that David wanted was to dwell in God's house, in his presence. Solomon, no, that was not really... He loved God, but he was not fully given over to God as his father, David. And, and hence, because his heart was only partially given to God, he only received from God partial fulfillment, partial joy, and so on. Because of it, he slowly began to turn away from the Lord, looking to fill the void. That's the problem. If you don't let God fill the void in your heart completely, the world will rush in to fill what's left and eventually push out God. And so this happened with Solomon. He looked to fill the void in his heart with other things and in the process spent most of his life listening his adult life, in a backslidden state, chasing happiness in a number of different ways. He chronicles uh, these empty pursuits in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he talks about the things he thought would bring him happiness. He mentions things like money, success, materialism, sexual pleasure. He pursued all of these to find the fulfillment he felt he was missing. Near the end of his life, he wises up. Supposed to be a wise guy, but he wises up. Played the fool most of his life, as he looked everywhere to find what only God could give him. A lot of Christians like that, but near the end of his life, he wises up and comes back to God, summing up what he learned through his experience, what life was really all about. I'll I'll state it succinctly. He said, "You can read about this in chapter thirteen of uh, Ecclesiastes." Here it is, that we love God and obey all that he has said. In other words, guys, life is all about being wholehearted for God. It's all about being wholehearted for God. Look, keep the door of your heart locked against the love of this world seeping in. Solomon himself said, above all else, guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. That's why Satan wants it. That's why Satan targets it. That's why he's orchestrated everything in this world to appeal to the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. He wants to capture your heart. If he can take hold of your heart, he can control your life. So beware of the danger of complacency, stopping short. Beware of the danger of commixing, friendship with the world. And number three, finally, the danger of complaining, failure to be thankful. When it comes to complaining about anything in life, whether it be a ministry, a job, a spouse, our health, our finances, or anything else God has given to us or allowed to come into our lives, understand, whenever we complain about our circumstances, no matter what they are, God takes it personally. When God gave the children of Israel victory over the Egyptians, they found themselves in the wilderness, which unbeknownst to them was going to become one of the greatest challenges they would ever face. They didn't realize that at the time. We read in Numbers 21, that as God led the children of Israel into the wilderness, 21 verse, Numbers 21, verse 4, they became very discouraged. The Hebrew is impatient. Some of your translations, most of them do have impatient. I checked it. And uh, the New King James, the King James has uh, discouraged. It's a, it's a um, linked together. It's, a, it's an impatience that breeds discouragement, okay? But, you know, this led them. So, you know, they're in the wilderness now. And things were not happening as quickly as they wanted them to happen. And at one point they became impatient. Now, this led them to question God's ability to lead them because, listen, the journey was long and difficult uh, as opposed to quick and easy, which we think everything in life should be for us as Christians. Their questioning of God's guidance ultimately led to them complaining about God's goodness. Watch out for that one-two punch. In Numbers 21, verse 5, we read... And they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. Guys, this complaining brought God's judgment upon them. Numbers 21, verse 6. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Again, Paul said in Romans 15 verse 4, these things that were written in the Old Testament were written for our learning. As Christians, when we question God's ability to lead our lives, because we find ourselves going through difficult circumstances which listen, have us discouraged or have uh, and have caused us to become impatient because things are not, happening as quickly or as fast as we would like when that happens. If you allow yourself, and not every Christian falls into this, many do, depends where you are with your walk in your walk with God, how mature you are. But when Christians become impatient because things are not happening as quickly as they would like. I've been praying for my spouse to get saved for two years now, and what's going on, God? I've been praying for my business to take off for I don't know how long. How come you're not responding, Lord? There are other things you could throw in there, of course. But when you let yourself become impatient, discouraged, that inevitably leads to murmuring and complaining, which takes the form of questioning the goodness of God. You know, if he was really a good God and loving God, would I be in this situation? Oh, that's a big one. The enemy uses. You know, I hear talk about God being such a God of love. Well, if he really loved me, if he was really a God of love, why am I going through this? I'm supposed to be his child. Look how he treats his kids. You know? I deserve better than this. Why are others being blessed and not me? The murmuring and complaining, right? But guys, whenever you complain about your circumstances as a Christian, God takes it personally because he is the one who has led you into that situation in the first place and again i'm assuming of course that you're not in that place because of sin that's why paul the apostle admonished us in first thessalonians 5 verse 18 and everything give thanks for listen this is the will of god for you in christ jesus it's the will of god for us to give thanks in all things all circumstances Because as Paul said in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. So to put those two scriptures together in in all things give thanks because all things are working together for good. That's what God has told us in his word. So when I complain over my circumstances, I am basically saying, God, you're a liar. You told me everything was working together for good. This is not good. I can't trust you. Well, that's ridiculous. Just because you can't see the good doesn't mean that God doesn't have good in mind and eventually will show you what he was working towards. And it's not always the easiest path he's going to lead you in. It's the, the right path that you grow. Look, ingratitude leads to complaining. And complaining leads to, listen, the death of our walk with God. I'll read to you Numbers 14, verse 29, which talk about, talks about literal death of those that complained against God. Uh, the, the poisonous snakes came into the camp and bit them. It says, the carcasses of you, God's recounting this, the carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who were numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and And above. That was a very serious sin on the part of the people. God was leading them, and here they're complaining as if God was not the God he claimed to be, as if God did not have good in mind that he had led them out into the wilderness to kill them. And that was such an egregious accusation that God held those 20 years old and above accountable. That was the age of accountability back then. Those under 20, God did not kill with judgment. But those 20 and above were wiped out because of their complaining. Paul, the apostle, knew this was such an important lesson to learn. He quotes it or talks about it in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 5 and 6. Let me read them to you, these verses. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples (laughs) to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The lesson that Paul feels is so important that we internalize from this story out of the Old Testament, the lesson that he wants us to learn is that we can be saved and enjoy some blessing, some protection some provision and leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians, and still stop short of entering into all the fullness that God has for our lives. We call it the life of the Spirit. I believe that when these folks came out of Egypt, Egypt was a type of the world. They went through the Red Sea. Paul says a type of water baptism. They're in the wilderness. I believe that spoke of the fact they were saved but carnal still. Now, God wanted to bring them immediately into the promised land, which represented the life of the Spirit, spiritual maturity. But every single adult died in the wilderness except for two. How many adults were there? It was like three million people altogether. Subtract the kids. So what do you got? Um, Maybe a million and a half adults. Every one of them died in the wilderness except for two, Joshua and Caleb. That's a pretty sobering lesson to learn, that people can be saved and still be very carnal to the point where they never grow, and they wander their entire Christian lives in a spiritual wilderness and die there all because of the murmuring, complaining, failure to believe what God has said in his word, the promises he's given. This is some serious stuff to grapple with. And again, the wilderness represents, spiritually speaking, carnality, complaining, unbelief, and a state of arrested spiritual development. Guys, there are many Christians in America, I'm convinced, who live in a spiritual wilderness their whole Christian life because they refuse to fully believe the promises of God. They they refuse to trust the power of God to give them victory to protect them and provide and so on. And because they are carnally minded, they constantly complain about what God listen, hasn't given them instead of thanking him for all the great things he has given and provided for them. Instead, they lust after the things of the world, even as Israel lusted after the things of Egypt, even after God had delivered them from that bondage. Jesus said no one's worthy of the kingdom who puts his hand to the plow and looks back. When God has delivered us from the world and all the bondage, the alcoholism, the drug abuse and whatever else we were in bondage to and we start moving forward in freedom, victory children of God now the Lord is pouring his blessings upon us and we're looking back at the world what we're missing out? No wonder the Lord gets upset. Look, an attitude of ingratitude and selfishness seems to be the inevitable consequence of those who take the blessings of God for granted and begin to feel they are entitled to happiness in the form of all kinds of material blessings. Now, actually, Paul the Apostle in 2 Timothy 3, verse 2 warned us that this attitude would permeate into the church and would characterize the last days. I'll just read to you 2 Timothy 3, verse 2. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful. And I think that Paul had in mind churchgoers more than anybody else. Look, the inevitable outflow of an unthankful heart will be complaining just as the inevitable outflow of a heart that has been touched and filled with God will be thanksgiving and praise. Let me close by just saying this. A heart of unthankfulness leads to all kinds of social and even psychological problems. The famous stress researcher Hans Seeley claims that two attitudes, more than any others, influence the quality of everyday life. He said, and I quote, On these two emotions depend our peace of mind, our feelings of security or insecurity, of fulfillment or frustration, in short, the extent to which we can make a success of life. The most destructive emotion is revenge. But in contrast, among all the emotions, there is one which more than any other accounts for the absence of stress in human relations, and that is a feeling of gratitude. Professional counselor Dale Robbins writes, he said, and I quote, I used to think people complained because they had a lot of problems, but I have come to realize they have problems because they complain. Complaining doesn't change anything or make situations better. It amplifies frustration, spreads discontent and discord, and can invoke an invitation for the devil to cause havoc with our lives. He said complaining makes us miserable end quote well you know what that's exactly what the psalmist said in psalm 77 verse 3 he said i complained and my spirit was overwhelmed one author summed it up well he said and i quote we ourselves often don't realize how blessed we are or how thankful we ought to be until what we have is taken from us it is good and fitting as christians to learn to be thankful to God every day for the many blessings he so richly pours out upon us, and not to feel he owes us anything, but that everything comes to us as a gift of his grace. Someone once said that gratitude is the source for all other Christian virtues. If that is the case, then perhaps we need to reason that ingratitude may well be the source of all or at least many of our faults and problems as well. When we begin to take for granted what God has done for us, we become calloused and filled with pride, and then God can no longer use us or bless us. When that happens, it becomes impossible for people to see the good in life and be grateful for the smallest of God's blessings. The result is they become miserable people, unable to enjoy life no matter how much they acquire." Guys, as we read earlier, many of God's people complained in the wilderness and wound up dying there, never going all the way into the promised land, that place of spiritual maturity, fruitfulness, and blessing. Again, these things were written for our learning, that we not make the same mistakes that they made and stop short of entering into the fullness of what God has for us because of our complaining our murmuring, our unbelief. At one point, Paul says, Israel failed to enter into the promised land because of unbelief. Pure and simple. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. When you read his word, you must believe that what God said is true, nothing is hard for him, and what he has promised, he will perform. And so guys, we have been uh, talking today about being on guard against the dangers that can rob you of your victory in Christ and keep you from going forward or, even worse, cause you to slide backward. Again, they are the danger of complacency, stopping short, the the danger of commixing, friendship with the world, and the danger of complaining, failure to be thankful. And that concludes our series on the topic of true freedom. We have covered over the last six weeks many principles from God's Word for having victory, for walking in that victory, and now for holding on to that victory because once you get victory over the devil, he wants it back. He wants to dominate again. So be careful. Be careful. Bottom line, just keep drawing close to Jesus. Stay in the Word. Believe what God has told you, and you will walk in the Spirit every day of your Christian life. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth you have set forth in your word for us to feed upon, apply, and walk in. Father, we thank you. We ask that you would give grace to us, Lord, to apply everything we've learned over the last six weeks, that we might walk in freedom. We might know true victory by being the slaves of Christ. And that, Lord, you would uh, give us grace to to be lights in this dark world. For your glory father we ask that you would continue to bless our studies in john's gospel we ask all this in jesus precious name amen